without probably doubt, if I was to ask everyone this question, the most, probably the most famous verse or most prominent verse, I would say, in the heart of most people, most Christians, is John 3.16. Um, when we interview people for baptism and we spend some time with them about why do you want to get baptized and about their salvation, I always ask this question, I, and I've asked our staff to make sure you ask this question, okay? Ask that person, how do you know for sure you're saved and what verse of Scripture would you give to back it up? Of course, I think being a little bit nervous and anxious, being in the office talking to us about that question, they immediately, the only, probably the verse that just comes to your mind first is John 3.16. And that's a good one. That's okay. But I think for most of us, it's the most famous verse in all the Word of God. Martin Luther said that John 3.16 is the Bible miniature. Herschel Hobbes, who was a great uh, Sunday school superintendent teacher for the, back in the day of the Southern Baptist Convention, back, Convention, back in the day when it, it was profound in preaching the Word of God, and holding the Word of God up as, as full authority. He said that, the gospel, that John 3.16 is the gospel in superlatives. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, said that John 3.16 is the little gospel. He called it the Mount Everest of Scripture. You know, when you look at John 3.16, it addresses all the isms of the world. All the isms of the world. For instance, for God addresses the ism of atheism. It, 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 it rebukes the idea of atheism that there is no God. There is a God. John 3.16, the word so love, addresses the ism of fatalism, which says that God is an impersonal force and he has no feelings. Now, I want to correct that tonight. God has feeling. God is love. Uh, it, it addresses the, 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 the two words, the world, addresses the ism of nationalism, which says that God only died for, Christ only died for a select group of people. No, Christ died for the whole world. His atonement, his death is not limited to a few. It's for the whole world. And by the way, the gospel is for the whole world. The phrase that he gave responds to the ism of materialism, where in materialism, people say that it's more blessed to receive than it is to give. I want to tell you that God is more of a giver than he's a receiver. And I would tell you tonight that the sum total of all the praises of every one of God's people in Heritage Baptist Church doesn't come close to matching or exceeding or coming anywhere near to what God gave us when He gave His Son, Jesus Christ. The phrase, His only begotten Son, responds to the ism of Mohammedism, which says that God has no sin. And I want to correct that tonight. God has only one begotten Son. It responds to the ism, uh, to the, the phrase that whosoever believeth, and I, and I like that phrase, whosoever, Responds to the ism of Calvinism, which says that Christ only died for a select few, or what they call the elect. And that's not true. Christ died for every sinner. And he makes salvation available to everyone. He says, whosoever believeth. That's why I love what it says in Romans 10, 13, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The phrase in him responds to the ism of pluralism, which says that all roads lead to heaven. No, there's only one road to heaven. That's to God's Son, Jesus Christ. The phrase, should him perish responds to the ism of annihilationism, which says there is no hell, which some theologians have grafted into, and even modern-day theologians have grafted into, or modern-day Bible teachers. And I would say tonight, the Bible says there is a place that, that, that you, you will not perish, that you can spend all of eternity in a place called hell. And then the last phrase, but have everlasting life, responds to the ism of Armenianism, which says that you can lose your salvation and gain it back. And I want to say tonight that once you're saved, you're always saved. And that's what First John is all about there. John had the privilege of recording John 3.16. The gospel, the Bible miniature. But now, many years later, look at 1 John 
he had the privilege by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record another 3.16, and that was 1 John 3.16. In the Gospel of John, throughout the New Testament, the word love is referenced 39 times. God made a very strong reference, uh, uh, reference to love in, in the Gospel of John. In 1 John, that little book there, the word love is recorded 26 times. The centerpiece of that is in verse 16 here, in our, ver- in our chapter here. Love refers to God's love for us and our love for others. God's love for us, in the Greek, is agape, which speaking about the highest form of love. Our love for others is agapeo. Still the same idea. The idea of love exhibited, love that is given. And notice verse 16 here. He defines this love for us. He says, hereby perceive, or we understand, we comprehend, we know, hereby we grasp, we have a knowledge of this, hereby perceive we the love of God. Now what was God's love? The Bible says in verse 16, because He laid down His life for us. Now that phrase, laid down His life, or laid down, is a very powerful Greek word that incorporates that phrase. To lay down means specifically to give up, to take your hands off of, to turn over, to give over to someone else, that you no longer have control, you no longer have ownership, you've given it over for the benefit of someone else. That's a very powerful thought. And he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. Now, that's God's love for us. And we ought to thank God for that tonight. Amen? That he loves us so much that he gave his own life for us. I mean, we have to grasp that tonight. You know, there's many gifts that God gives. The Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, I love that verse there in James chapter 1, I think it's verse 17, because it speaks about the Father's love, and it speaks about every gift. And if you look in the context of all of that, it's speaking about the gift, the gift of, of the Word of God and the gift of salvation, and even trials in our life are the gift of God. But the most, the most supreme gift we're talking about tonight is how God proved His love for us, how God demonstrated His love for us, how God commended His love towards us, and it says that He laid down His life for us. Now, we go on in verse 16, and He talks about, goes from agape love, God's love for us, to agapeo, the love we're to have for others. And He says, using that as our benchmark, and you need to write that down there tonight, using that as our standard Using that as our benchmark in verse 16, he's giving us a, a, a principle for Christian living and a principle for our practice, of, a principle to live out. He says, hereby we per- perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And he says, and he just goes on by saying, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's it. End of sentence. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, what's he talking about there? When he talk about laying down, giving up. Giving over, assigning the ownership that I have to someone else so that they may benefit from what I'm giving to them. It's what I give, I don't expect to have it come back. It's not going to come back. It's giving the most highest gift of all. He's talking about to us the standard of sacrifice. Nestled in these verses are some great Christian principles, some great principles of Christian living, 
where all of that, the centerpiece of that, is the standard of sacrifice. That's what he's using here. To understand all of this, we must understand the standard of sacrifice here. And so tonight I want us to see the standard of sacrifice as John was referencing here. Notice, number one, if you're taking notes tonight, number one, we need to, we need to study sacrifice for just a few minutes as, as exemplifying in verse 16 the life of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to see tonight is the supremacy of sacrifice. The supremacy in sacrifice. When I say supremacy, the highest standard, the highest benchmark, the greatest goal, which is Jesus Christ. To understand sacrifice, whatever sacrifice you and I give is very meager compared to Jesus Christ. And I think of a humorous illustration. I think about a chicken and a pig that were on a farm talking to each other. That's just, that's just an illustration, okay? Pigs and chickens don't talk to each other, amen? If you believe that, you've you, you got to get your head checked out, amen? But it's just an illustration. And they were talking about what they do, and so the, 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 the pig was a little bit upset, and he's talking to the chicken. He says, now, Mr. Chicken, he says, you lay an egg for breakfast. He says, that's a donation, he says, I'm expected to give either a side of ham or some bacon. That's a sacrifice, okay? And I think when you think about that tonight, our concept of sacrifice pales, it pales in significance to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ laid down his life. Whatever you have sacrificed, and we would consider sacrifice, is very small, very, very minuscule compared to what Jesus did. So we need to think about this for a minute. The word laid down was a phrase that Jesus used in the Gospel of John. And John, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's a much older man, he's a mature man. Quite honestly, he's a theologian. He trained some great men under him that became, were part of the early church fathers in the Baptist movement. And so, John receives, captures, recaptures these words. And I want you to notice some verses. In John 10, 11, Jesus introduced the thought of laying down his life for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. In that same passage, John 10, 18, Jesus said, No man taketh it from me. Notice this. But I lay it down of myself. Now, sacrifice means you are not compelled you are not coerced. That's true sacrifice. Jesus said, no man, he said, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down in myself. I have power to lay down. And that's sacrifice. Sacrifice means you weren't compelled. You weren't forced. You gave it of yourself. And he says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. The, this commandment I have received my father. And then Jesus summed it all up in John 15, 13. In John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, three times, maybe four times in the gospel of John, G, no, actually five times, Jesus makes reference to laying down. He's talking about sacrifice and the standard of sacrifice. Later on, Peter would make an echo to that. And he said, well, Lord, if you're going to die, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus said to him, you don't understand what you're saying, son. He says, you don't understand what it really means to lay your life down. Now, John, 50 years later, is writing about the same thing. And he's writing about in 1 John three sixteen the standard for sacrifice by saying, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life first. Now, look at Jesus Christ now. He said, I'm the good shepherd and I give my life for the sheep. And he says, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. And he said, greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Now, we need to take that and look at the supremacy of sacrifice, that the supremacy of sacrifice is what Jesus Christ did for us. First thing we notice is that he was virtuous. 
We must not forget the fact that Jesus Christ was sinless. And we ought to thank God as we go into this, this Christmas season that the essence of the virgin birth, and speaking about the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus Christ is a sinless Savior. He's sinless, without sin. The Old Testament type was a lamb without blemish, without spot. Jesus had no guilt. Jesus had no sin. Jesus was most holy. Hebrews 4.15 He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. I mean, you think with me for just a minute. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He felt the immensity, the pressure of giving His life. And He said, Lord, if it be Your will, take this cut from me. You didn't want to die. You don't want to die. You, you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a brave Christian. To be honest with you, nobody wants to die. I mean, because that thought is just is very, very frightening to us from a human perspective. And, and, but yet Jesus said, Lord, if it's your will, take this, take this cup from me. Not my will, but thine be done. And so, you know, Jesus, he was tempted as we are. He was pressured as we are. He had the, he had the, same, the same opportunity to back off and to quit. But the Bible says he was without sin. The devil took him and tempted him there in Matthew chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and yet, in Luke chapter 3, and yet Jesus was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says about Jesus Christ, who did no sin, and he did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He did not sin with his life, he did not sin with his action, he did not sin with his mouth. He was virtuous, and we have to understand the essence of Jesus Christ as we talk about the supremacy of sacrifice. He was virtuous, he was holy, he was sinless. We ought to thank God we have a sinless Savior tonight, amen? But there's something else, he was voluntary. Voluntary means he took his hands off. He says, no man taketh it from me, I lay it down of myself. We've had several giving campaigns in the history of our church. Very early days, before even the church was organized, a fledgling group of people got together and we talked about the pastor that was to be called. We said, well, how are we going to, we've got to take care of him. In those early days, before we even organized, we Men amongst yourselves and said, well, you know, we're going to establish, whether he accepts it or not, we're going to say, we're going to establish, we're going to support the pastor and take care of him. Not long after that, we established a budget and we started paying rent. No longer that, we had midweek services in the pastor's home and just a small group of people, I'm talking about two handfuls of people, laid out the vision that, you know, we need to start the process of transporting people to church and thank God there's going to be a day coming we'll start transporting people back to church, Amen. Fledging group of people. My memory serves right. I, I think we raised about three offerings. We raised $10,000. Again, some of them weren't even working then at that time. They didn't even have a job. We raised $10,000 for the purchase of a new van. We raised more than that, but I mean, we, we, we raised $10,000 for the purchase of our very first van. No longer that, God gives the opportunity to purchase this property. We didn't have a lot of money. We still don't have a lot of money. Baptists don't have money, amen? That's a, that's a Bible doctrine. Baptists don't have money, amen? So where's that at? Somewhere there in Hezekiah 5.5 5 there. I don't know, somewhere like that in the Bible there. We raised money. We became the first mortgage holders on a bond program. We became our own, our own creditors. We messed up. We lost our money on it. Not long after that, we started raising different types of funds. Street fest for... Giveaways, $10,000 to accumulate, th to per put things packaged together, to give away, I don't know, 500 to 1,000, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 packets of things. We got into a building program. We raised money. Heritage Center. I think we raised about four or five offerings before we broke ground on this property. On this, this lot we're here that I'm preaching from right now. And then after that, we 
We're within that window of three years that we needed to, where we were allowed. We had a three-year window to start in the Berean Center. And I thank God for Brother Dave Lowe. He's going to look at the numbers. He said, Pastor, I think he said, you know, I think we could do it. He said, I think we have the means to do it. He said, we just need to raise some more money. I said, well, we'll do it again. But every one of those programs, which I'm thankful for the sacrifice, I'm telling you tonight, I'm thankful for Heritage Baptist Church. I'm thankful for the millions and millions and millions of dollars of sacrifice for the buildings, for expansion, for the gospel, faith promise missions. Millions have been given to faith promise missions. For missionaries, and God knows I had Brother Justin read a, read a letter back in our missions conference, which we may read again, just giving you the sum total of what we were able to, basically what we could get a hold of. It's not an accurate number. We think it's far short of the number, but of the, of the thousands of people that have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior in the last 12 months, and the thousands of baptisms, and the number of churches started, and men sent out to preach in these national churches there. I mean, there's just a lot of sacrifice. But I want to tell you something about every one of those sacrifices. And I don't mean to say this in a hard way, but most of those sacrifices, there was a little bit of compulsion. The pastor had to get up and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We've got to raise the money to do it. And we might have to do that again next year, even with COVID going on. Here's the need we've got to do. We, hey, we did that this year. I think we did that around March or April. We, we wanted to raise some money for HBC Cares to uh, do some outreach to the hospitals because we didn't have the budget. We needed to raise quite a bit of money. We wanted to do something that was did uniquely different than everybody else. And, and I'll just tell you right now, tonight, you'll hear about this later this year. We just God has just opened some doors through that, through some of these hospitals and people we've met. We've just got an inroad to some people we wouldn't have otherwise gotten to. We thank God for it. You say it's an expensive inroad. Yes, yeah, sacrifice is not cheap. But all of those are involved in compulsion. Jesus, no one forced him. I'm glad for that, amen? He laid down his life voluntarily. He came for you and I. I mean, here's the king of glory. He voluntarily, that's sacrifice, voluntarily gave himself for you and I. He was virtuous. His voluntary, hey, sacrifice, listen to this. He was a victim. The Old Testament concept of sacrifice, you had an animal, a young firstling lamb. You have to understand, you're not talking about a big sheep. You're talking about a little baby cute little lamb i mean it's cute it's cuddly it's very innocent it has no blemish i mean it's so fragile if you're not very careful if you bend its leg too too hard you'll break his leg it's a very fragile animal but the sacrifice implied a victim that was placed on the altar i mean we're talking about we're talking about for sin a victim whose life would be given. And here's the idea. A victim, that victim, its life was given on behalf of another. The Bible says he laid down his life for us. He listened to Galatians 1.4. Who gave himself. Ephesians 5.2. Has given himself for an offering and a sacrifice. There was a victim. There was a death. When we're talking about sacrifice, our sacrifice. We can replace money. We can earn more money. We can sell an asset and donate it. And we can invest and see another asset appreciate, donate it. I mean, hey, we can replace it. You can't replace your life. You give your life, it's once for all, amen? It's once for all there. He was virtuous. Now, remember, we're talking about the supremacy sacrament. He was virtuous. He was voluntarily. He was a victim. He was victorious, praise God, Amen? Look at 1 John 3, 8. His sacrifice was victorious. By the way, that, remember now, I'm talking about the standard of sacrifice. Anytime we sacrifice, there should be a victory associated with it. 
And in 1 John 3, 8, notice, he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Who was he victorious over? Over Satan. Amen? He died for our sins, but he died to have victory over Satan. Praise God for that. Somebody help me with that tonight. Amen? What works of the devil? The power of death. The power of death. How do we know that? From Hebrews. Hebrews tells us that when he, that, through, that, he, that through death, he might destroy him that at the power of death, that is the devil. Now, the devil is the, he's a murderer and he has the power of death. But thank God, Jesus is the giver of life and he has the power of life. Amen. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he dead, yet shall he live. Victorious over Satan. Victorious over sin. Galatians 1.4 who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And I like the fact that Paul underscored all iniquity. In fact, the word iniquity, the word transgression, if you remember in our study, and it's found right here in 1 John 3.4, the word iniquity, transgression, the same word. It means those who are lawless ones, they were without the law, they were true lawbreakers. The true essence of depravity is someone who's broken the law. I mean, we are terrible law, lawless people in the sight of God because of our evilness. But 1 John 2.2, John also mentions that too. Look at 1 John 2.2. He's the propitiation. He satisfied all the sin debt for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now listen, he's victorious, but I want to sum it all up tonight with the supremacy. Notice this tonight. I want you to understand this tonight. Yes, he was virtuous. He had to be a sinless savior. The motive we give, the motive for sacrifice should be virtuous. It should be without any stinginess. It should be a heart. There should be no pretension. Heart. He was virtuous. He was voluntary. He was a victim. He was victorious. But here's the most important word I want you to capture. He was valuable. Amen. Life is valuable. He was valuable. He gave, God gave his all. God gave his best. He gave everything for us. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us was because of the love of God. Look at 1 John 3, 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because we laid down his life for us. The underscoring of that, the emphasis behind it, the motivation behind it was the love of God for us. God's greatest love for us is exemplified through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why he said in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. He says, In this was manifested the the love of God for us. He says, he's talking about the love of God expressed there. He said, First John 4.10, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8, But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's sacrificial death is the standard or benchmark for sacrifice. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Because now as we get into the next part, we realize that Jesus Christ sets for us the tone, sets for us the standard and benchmark that through his sacrifice, Sacrifice, it helps us to understand how we are to live out our Christian lives in the matter of sacrifice. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said this about the death of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He says, my entire theology can be condensed into four simple words. Christ died for me. That's a great thought. That's a great thought. You ought to write that in your Bible. Spurgeon said, my theology of God can be summed up in four words. Christ died for me. Because without that, you have no theology. Without that, you don't have salvation. Without that, you have no relationship for God. 
So number one, we see the supremacy of sacrifice. Notice, secondly, which you go down, go down our verses down to verse 18. Notice with me the sincerity in sacrifice. Now, the context of what we're looking at is God's love for us, God's love working through us. Okay, write that down. God's love for us, God's love working through us. That's what he's talking about. Now notice verse 11. Go to verse 11 first. John was writing to a church he was deeply concerned about. And every time he speaks about them in the beginning, he takes them back to those early foundational days of the Christian life. Now, let me just say this this evening. You ought to thank God for those foundational days of your Christian life. You ought to thank God for those foundational days in which you're being trained and learning the, the work of God. Uh, I, I, I'm thankful for a lot of our young men, and I want to encourage all the young men to realize you're at a place in your life. You're 17 and up. You're at a place in your life. You need to come under the, the mentorship of your pastor a little bit more closely and to realize that you need to learn foundational tools and foundational applications to help you learn the Christian life. You need to learn the foundation to pray and the foundation how to win souls and get them into church. You need to learn the foundation of how to administrate. You need to learn the foundation of how to work with people. You need to learn the foundation of how to have confidence in dealing with people, how to get the power of God in your life and all of these type of things. These are foundational things. If you go your Christian life and being in church, you don't least learn those things. You're learning everything from preaching at a distance, which is all good. But there comes a point you've got to get under the tutelage and under the shadow and realizing that you've got to be learn those foundational tools. You've got to learn these things if you're going to be effective in ministry and serving God. Otherwise, you'll go from 21 to 22 to 25 to 30, 35, 40, 45. You'll get to 65 years of age. You never learn anything. You've got to sit under the feet of someone who's going to teach you how to learn these things for God. So this is what John said, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. And he said, I'm not telling you anything new. And by the way, that's why a lot of times we say something, we preach something, and, and we preach it again and again and again. And, and you know, sometimes a little, we get a little bit in this, this because we're so entertainment-minded, we kind of sit back a little bit and we yawn. It's okay, I've heard that one before. I need to hear something new. It's okay to hear it again because he said, this is the message which you've heard from the beginning. It's okay to repeat some things every now and then. He said, you've heard this before, but he said, you need to hear it again. And he said, this is what you've heard from the beginning. And I'm still going to reinforce it tonight. He said that we should love one another. So basic. He's taking back John 13, verses 34 and 35. Because at that moment in time, they were up in that upper room and they were bickering and fighting about who was going to be number one and who was going to, who was going to succeed Jesus and who's going to do this and that. And, and that's the natural way of thinking. I mean, people think about that. Who's going to do that? I just read in the paper the, or the news the other day that the Alameda Health System which incorporates Fairmount Hospital, where we have some of our church members work at, and Highland Hospital, where we have some of our church members work at. And we've had the opportunity in both hospitals, and San Leandro Hospital, where some of our church members work at, that we've had the opportunity to extend HBC Cares there, and delivering meals and ministering to people. We've gotten to know people on a first-name basis. And I just read that because there's just a lot of turmoil going to that organization, and we kind of heard about it from some of the people there. They just, you know, they were just saying to us things like, hey, just a breath of fresh air that you folks are here to bring us, a, to, to acknowledge us and bring these gifts to us and things. And we just feel, you know, we feel like an place where we feel like we're just we're, we're being used we feel like you know somebody loves us there and by the way somebody needs to love the people in the world amen i mean it needs to be the local new testament church amen and so and so they but i just read in the news the other day that their ceo that they have who's been there for five years stepped down and now they're talking about who's going to be the successor i mean that's how people think 
We're in succession mindset in the country. We're, we're talking about the succession of our current president and the possibility of who the new president is going to be. Is it going to be four more years or is it going to be a new president, whatever it's going to be? I mean, we're talking about succession. People think about succession planning. Uh, businesses, when they, get, they mature for a period of time, as they get on, whether they have multiple shareholders or a single shareholder, they're thinking about, okay, what about our succession plan? Do we have a succession plan? I had a, had a student that's good, working on their master's, at, uh, uh, their master's uh, program there at, at one of the Bible college and called me up and said, I've got some questions. I'm working on a page. I'm writing about succession planning for the ministry. Can I ask you some questions? I said, I'm not sure I can help you, but go ahead. And so they asked me some questions, gave, me, gave them my answers scripturally and what I think philosophically about that. I mean, people think about succession planning. They're thinking about it. That. That's what the disciples were thinking. They, they just heard Jesus talking about he's going to give his life down. They weren't thinking salvation. They were thinking succession planning. They're thinking, okay, who's going to take your place? Who's going to sit at your kingdom? Who's going to be there? We've got to think about who's going to be in charge of things. You know, people think that way. Now, it's natural, not necessarily spiritual, but it's natural people think that way. And here's what John said. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. And if he just stopped there, people would have thought, well, he's going to give us a great theological statement. And it's so basic. It's the basic of the Christian life. It's what keeps people in church. It, was key, keep, it helps people to keep going. It's how a new believer gets assimilated to the work of God. It's how you stay in church and I stay in church. It's what motivates us. It's, he says that we should love one another. And we take that and now we go down to verse 18. John was deeply concerned that the practices in the church at Ephesus was nothing short of being superficial. All surface. It was all surface. No heart. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I love him. I love my church. He was deeply concerned. It was very superficial. He said, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Now, the love is agapio. That's standard sacrifice we just spent a few minutes looking at. So notice verse 18. He gives a command. And he's addressing the entire congregation. He says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Paul made a similar command. And he may have been drawing from the same word that Paul did. In fact, why don't you turn to it right now, Ephesians 5, 2. Ephesians 5 is a very pivotal chapter for spiritual living. Paul made a very similar command. In fact, read Ephesians through. It's a masterful, masterful letter. Chapter 3 just kind of takes us to the heavenlies about the love of God. We ought to read that. Chapter 5, he's telling us how to practice it. In verse 1, he says, Be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. Verse 2, he says, And walk in love. What kind of love? Agapeo love. As Christ also has loved us and hath given himself, that means laid down his life, that means he was the supreme sacrifice. He has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for sweet-smelling savor. Now, when Paul wrote that, 
That's why I asked you to look at it. When Paul wrote that, his mindset was to get those believers to envision the days they were Jews in the temple watching as a sacrifice was offered. Because when a sacrifice was offered on the altar, it was not a very simple, simple practice. It was a very elaborate, a very emotional experience that you would have because you'd have the priest come and you'd have the offer there and the priest would come and the fire would be burning and a a victim's life would be taken and the blood would be shed on the altar there. And the high priest, if you would, would go inside the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on there and as they heard the bells ringing, they knew that he was alive. And they knew that the blood was being applied to the mercy seat. That the sins could be atoned for those people. I mean, back in those days, if you can imagine this, the give the sacrificial experience, just the daily, uh, the daily burnt offering of all of the, of the entire animal and the fat thereof and all of that was a very emotional experience. I mean, you could, the smell of the burning flesh and the smell of blood filling up the place. And you can imagine uh, during Passover time and the day of atonement, especially Passover time, as, as a lamb was being offered on altar after altar after altar. The priests were busy just making all these sacrifices and the blood, the blood would be flowing down these little, these little, these little, uh, like these little canals they would have that would flow down to the, the down to, down to the, 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 the Kidron Brook down there and would just be make itself there. I mean, you'd, the smell of blood. I, I grew up as a, as a son of a butcher and, and the smell of, the smell of blood and uh, going into meat factories as a slaughterhouse and things like that. I mean, it, it's very fresh in my mind right now when, when those things happen. And you can imagine there, the first time you smell it, if you're not used to it every day, it's a very overwhelming smell. And it's a very moving smell. It's a very, be honest with you, the smell of something being killed and the smell of slaughtering is very repugnant to your senses because you're not used to it. And so that, that sound and the sound of death of, 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 of an animal being killed and the slaughter there and the blood being shed. I mean, you have to imagine this, that as, as, as Paul is writing this, this was very fresh in the mind of a Jew there, very fresh in those believers who understood the matter of sacrifice there. And so he says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself. When he says he's given, it was voluntary. And when he says he's given himself, he was a victim. He gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet smelling savor that, that only his life given for our, for our sins. Only that could be acceptable in the sight and the smell of God. John's writing out of concern. He's giving a command in 1 John 3.18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. He's an 85, 90 year old man. He says, I've been around. Let's not talk about it. Let's do it. Let's not make a false promise. Let's do it. Let's not teach and preach about it. Let's do it. Let's not suggest somebody else needs to do something about it. We must do it. He's saying, let us love and deed the truth. You know what he's saying there? We must be sincere. He's saying we must be sincere. There must be sincerity behind what we do. He said, let's do it. Let's put to work what God wants us to do there, okay? Let us love in deed and in truth. Uh, the, word for, the word for deed is the same word we get our word, uh, we get our word ergonomic from. It's talking about good works. Let's demonstrate our love for one another with good works. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself of peculiar people, zealous of good works. The idea there that Paul's writing in Titus 2.14 is that we are, to, we are to have this hard attitude of sacrifice and this sincerity of sacrifice that we're going to love the brethren, love the church. There has to be sincerity. Let me tell you something tonight. Part of our westernized Christianity does not know anything about true sacrifice. 
Our Western Christianity has to give you the place. We've got to ask you, how much time do you have? Or do you have time? Or have you overloaded? Are you burned out? Are you, do you have too much going on? And what about this? And what about that? And there's no concept there about asking, will you serve? And, 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 and somebody just say, whatever it takes, preacher, I'm willing to do it. Tell me what's involved. I'm willing to make the sacrifice. I give myself. I give my time. But no, we have to cajole people and ask people to do things and get another saying it's all wrong. I mean, thank God we have to. We're in a busy society. You've got to raise your family. And, and many of our people, we've got hardworking people. I, I think, we have one of the hardest working congregations there is probably anywhere in America. I know a lot of our people that work 12-hour shifts and some 15, 16 hours and put in a lot of hours during the day and to make things go by. And back before COVID, I mean, you had the commute time to them. I mean, they spent their time on the road and met, God, God help us. They had to have Saturday aside and do their shopping, spend some time with their kids. And I can understand the heart of a, of a parent. They're just so busy with work and everything else. And if they have a, more than one ministry at church, they're just feeling, I just need a little more time with my kids. And I realize I'm seeing some things slipping in their lives. I need time for that. But I'm to say today, when, when we look at the perspective of what Paul's writing here, and the perspective of what John's writing here, he says, you know, we're, they, they had gravitated to the place, this is the church that, that was not, at, this was the church that was beyond 40 A.D., and beyond 50 AD, we're talking about 80 AD now, maybe 90 AD, when John is writing this. And here was a church that now, it, everything they were doing as far as for other people was all lip service. Well, let somebody else do it. Well, that's good teaching, preaching, but I don't have time to do it. Well, let's see who volunteers to do it, and I'll come alongside of it. The standard for sacrifice is Jesus Christ, voluntarily out of a heart of love, giving his life for you and me. Let us love in deed and in truth. Deed means work. Deed means effort. Putting your hands to the, to the child there. Truth means sincerity. Truth means without pretense. Truth means without expecting anything returned. You don't even, we're not even worried, you're not even concerned. Somebody says thank you to you. You're doing something for others because it's the right thing to do. You're doing something for others because you show you care. You do something for others from the heart and not out of habit. You do something for others not because you have to, but because you want to. Amen? Mrs. March Schmidt. Mrs. March Schmidt, I want to just illustrate something to you tonight. Just turned 94 this past week. If you haven't said that happy birthday, give her a call and say happy birthday. I'll give you her number. 94. Still fresh in my mind. I was training a potential staff member back in 2004. 2000, excuse me, 2007. I think it was 2007. I wasn't even considering them at that time. I said, and I, I tested them out. I said, let's go so winning. Let's go so winning. I want to see what you're made out of. Let's see how you operate with people. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to find out where you're at with, as we go so winning. We had a great day. I mean, it's one of those days, I don't know how to explain it. We were knocking it down. I mean, it was just one of those, I mean, God was knocking it down. We weren't knocking God was knocking it down. We got to Mrs. Smith Street. I had not knocked on that door before, and if I had, I couldn't remember. Knocked on her door. She's what, about, Brother Justin, how tall? Is she five foot tall? I don't know, she's five foot tall, something like that. And she opened the door, and I didn't know her. She's not watching, so I'm going to say a few things to make you laugh here. But she was a cranky lady. <laughs> she opened the door, and she says, all right, what do you want? I said, whoa. Gated door, right? I said, well, I'm Pastor Fogg from, all right, I know you're from the church. She swung the door open. Now, 
The person who's training was a man. We have a rule and practice in church. Two men, you don't go into a house with a woman. I mean, that's a basic one-on-one someone. Okay? You don't do that. And I said, ma'am, I said, I'm, your, I'm a pastor, and this man here is a good guy, but we're not, I can't go in your house. She said, just come on in. You're from the church. I trust you. I said, oh, man, I... And he's looking at me because he knows what my rule was, but I broke the rule at that moment of time. Walked through the door. I didn't walk very far. If you know her home, she has a kind of a chair. When you walk, there's a window here and the door there, and there's a little table there and these two, two chairs, and I, so we stood right by the chair. She said, okay. And you have to understand Mrs. Smith. If you know, she's, just, she's, just, she's, just, you know, she's not cranking anything. That's just how she is. She said, okay. Get me back to church. My church closed up, and I knew what church she went to. She went to church around the corner from here, and I tried to get the property for us. It's zoned for schooling and things like that. We couldn't get the property for whatever reason. They sold it for money and gave it away and whatever there. But My church closed up. I just want you to know, I've been here at home for several months. I had open-heart surgery. See that wheelchair there? I was in that wheelchair for a little while, and I'm using a walker. I'm very weak. That time, she was, what, 2007, 13 years ago. What was she, about 71 years of age at that time, or 81 years of age, something like that, 81 years of age? And she said, uh, I want to know about your church. I said, ma'am, first of all, it's a Baptist church. And she got it happy. She went, wow, it's a Baptist church. I said, ma'am, we, yes, we have a Baptist church. And she's, I said, it's an independent Baptist She said, independent Baptist church. Whoa. I'm, I'm, I'm honest. She was clapping her hands like this. And, she, and then she said, uh, um, when do you have church? Well, I said, we have church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. She said, oh, that's so happy. And she changed her tone. She wasn't cranky anymore. Amen. She said, oh, that's wonderful. You know, changed the tone of her voice, Jade. And I said, uh, we sing from a hymn book. She says, you sing from a hymn book? She just got all excited. And I told her about the church. And, you know, I, I can't explain this. The only time I think she ever did this to me, she just gave me a huge embrace. I didn't know what to do. She gave me a huge embrace. I go, bear hug. She says, oh, pastor, I want to visit your church. She got so excited. She got sick that night. Saturday night, I called her up. I said, I'm going to have a ride. Someone pick you up. I don't know if I can make it, Pastor Fong. My stomach's not doing very good. I got too excited this day about going to church, and I'm still very weak. I don't know if I can make it. I said, Mr. Smith, I said, tell you what, let's, let's talk in the morning. I've got the ride all fixed up. It's easy for me to call to cancel ride. It said, they'll pick you up about 9.30, something like that. Back when we had 10, 15 services only. I said, they'll pick you up. I said, let's just wait to them. Called her up at 8 o'clock, 8.30. She says, I'm doing a little bit better. I said, tell you what, you just come. I'll have a seat designated for you in the back. If you need to go run to the restroom, you need to get out. You need to get up for air if you can't sit very long. But that worked. She said, be fine. I'll have somebody sit with you. She came. She loved the service. She, she, just, she, just, she, she just enjoyed the music. She enjoyed the choir, all of that. She got up with her little, with her little, little cane, and she walked her way. If you have to understand, I, I'm almost, I can almost demonstrate how she walked. I'm not going to do that. And she walked from the back where she's at. And if, if those of you remember the, the, the main building there, uh, we used to, my wife and I used to stand there at those, those double doors. You know, we didn't have a proper front entrance, so we called that the entrance. And we'd stand there and greet people. And I miss those days of just greeting people and people having to go through that. I miss those days of being able to greet people and things like that. But they were coming through there, saying hello and so forth. And Mrs. Smith just kind of stood there very quietly. And I tried to get to her, and people kept pulling me aside. So finally, I just pulled aside. She said, Pastor Fong. I just want you to know I really had a good time today. I love this church. I want to make this my church. But Pastor Fong, I'm 81 years of age. I've got a very weak heart. I can barely walk. Look at me. There's nothing I can do for this church. I'm not sure what I could do, but she says, I will pray for you, and I will pray for the church. I said, Mrs. Schmidt, if all you did was pray for us, bless God, I'll take it. Amen? Good, Mrs. Schmidt does. Uncoerced. Uncoerced, 
Every time she hears there's a child born in our church, out of her own pocket, and I know how much she gets, it's not a whole lot. And by the way, she's a faithful tither. I said she's a faithful tither. You ought to be ashamed if you're not tithing. A little Social Security check and God help her soul. She goes down, I forgot the store, um, Michael's. She buys the material with her daughter. Her daughter takes her, takes her shopping, Carol. She buys the material. And she's just making little dolls. She puts them in bags. She'll call me up, or Justin, or somebody else, Brother Vaughn, Abigail, someone like that, and she'll say, would you come by? I have some dolls to give away. Please give them to somebody who's had a newborn baby. I mean, she's got, I've got, I've got so many, you guys need to keep, get, take these dolls from me. I've got many, too many dolls in my office, okay? Just come get them from me here. But we've got, we've got dolls here to give away. She makes these for the little girls, the little girls, that then let these little girls know that there's a lady in church that loves our church family and prays for them. She does more than that. I kind of calculated how much she's spending in material. I mean, she's doing this because she loves her. And by the way, she can't sit in a service like many of us can. It's very hard for her to sit and sit down. I mean, the chair, I think our new chairs are comfortable, but she just, it's very hard for her body. And she's very, and, she's, and by the way, she's fallen a few times. I mean, she had a bad fall about last year. She went outside her front yard, and somehow she lost her balance. She fell. She was on the concrete. She was on the concrete. And she thought, man, it's late in the afternoon. If nobody sees me, I'm going to be here all night. I'm in trouble. And God sent a man that came driving by 15 minutes later. He saw her. He stopped and helped her get up and get her back in her house. I mean, that was of God. I mean, she would have been there all night, probably would have died of the elements. I mean, she's just, she doesn't have good balance. She has all those things that, are just, that, that could go wrong for you physically, but she's a very independent woman. She makes these little dolls to love her church. To love the little families that she's probably never going to get a chance to fellowship. Most families will never even probably know about it. She makes these little dolls. Hey, just something else. Let me show you this. God put on her heart two, two or three years ago. She makes these multicolor. She takes yarn and she knits these lap warmers. These lap warmers. I mean, I don't know how many she's made. She's probably made, made over 100 of these, maybe 200 of these. And she puts them in bags and she calls us up. She says, now... Can you give these away to the ladies in the church? And what we started to do is we said, well, you know what? We, we're, we do some visits in convalescent homes. We think some of these, these, these homes, these assisted living facilities, they could use something like that. And we've given many of these away down there. We, we did several last Christmas. We did several during Christmas and Thanksgiving. Several, several times we sang and did works like that. So a lot of people saved through those places. I mean, I wish we could do that right now, but we can't. And uh, we'd give these away. And those ladies were so preachy. Even the men were very preachy. They said, oh, this feels so warm. And, you know, but she makes these. I mean, she, she doesn't idle her time away. She's not watching soap operas and she's not watching television. She's, she doesn't have a Netflix subscription. She doesn't even know what Netflix is, if you even asked her that. Amen. You know, she doesn't understand any of that kind of stuff. She doesn't know YouTube and things like that. You know what she does? She just takes her time. She listens to the news to find out what's going on in the world. And during the rest of the day, she's reading her Bible. She'll spend three hours a day reading her Bible. She's praying a couple hours a day. And the rest of the time, if she's not cooking to fix something for herself, she's knitting and making little dolls and doing things. You know what she's doing? She's loving and deed and truth because you know what? She just recognized that some 
somebody's got to love other people, and there's something she can do for the body of Christ, and there's something she can do for her membership there, and she does that by making her contribution, by making these shawls and making these lap warmers and dolls. I'm just saying, John said here, we need to love in deed and in truth. Listen, walk in love, even as Christ loved us. We are given a command, brother and sister in Christ, that when we come to church, our goal is not to come to what, based on what we're going to receive and what we're going to get out of today's sermon. I mean, I sometimes feel like I've, in some of these sermons I sit in, I feel like there's an expectation that there's an attitude like, what are you going to give us today? What's going to be different? I'll tell you what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the Word of God when I preach the Word. And whether you've heard it before or you've not heard it before, it doesn't matter. It's God's Word, and God's Word is perfect, and He delights our soul. And so we, we come expecting to receive some. We've got to get rid of this entitlement mindset and realize among ourselves that it's not about what we're going to receive. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. What come with this idea? I wonder if a preacher is going to tell, me about, tell us today about somebody who's got a need and somebody we need to bring a meal to and somebody we've got to help out there and knowing what the needs are and being there to respond to them. I'm just saying tonight, what a blessing. We were listening to the testimonies the other day for the Chan family for Jamin Chan's uh, Celebration of Life service. And his wife Esther got up and she started to... She started just to break up a little bit there, and she was sharing. Some of you may watch her on live stream. She was sharing there about all the people in their life for the last four years. People came who did repairs on their house voluntarily, did the maintenance of their yard work voluntarily. They weren't asked. They just saw a need, and they took responsibility. I mean, little things like that. I'm telling you, my wife and I sat there. My wife and I tried to hit each other, and she held my hand. I held her hand, and we just thought, what a, what, what a great testimony. Great testimony. Let me tell you something tonight. When you read this here, he's talking about here that hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He's not talking about, he's not talking, well, you need to lay down your life for an unsafe soul. Soul winning is great. But soul winning itself, when you don't have a passion and a love undergirded by sacrificial love for even your own, the, the body of Christ at church, there's something missing there. There's something missing. There's a disconnect there. And so he gives a command. Notice the second thing in this sincerity. Look at verse 17. He speaks about a command, but verse 17, he speaks about callousness. Whoso hath this world's good. Notice he didn't say plural goods. He said singular good. We all have it good, amen? You got a job, you have it good. Your money at the table, food on the table, you have it good. You got clothing that you're wearing. You got clothing for winter, you have it good. Whoso has this world's good. And by, by the way, nobody should be complaining tonight you don't have this world's good. Because I promise you, I'll take you to some parts of the world where you don't understand what poverty is till you've been to some parts of this world where real poverty exists. Whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and notices and shutteth up or closes down or just says no to, he shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him. Now what he's talking about there? He's addressing a practice that was going on in the church at Ephesus there. They had become indifferent to the needs of other people. Peter and John, that, that in those early days of the church, they saw a lame man there at the gate called Beautiful. Nothing beautiful about that gate with the lame man there. And people walked by. Everybody walked by was indifferent. That day, Peter and John said, we're not going to be indifferent. They cast their eyes on that man. And that man got healed. And he became an integral part of the New Testament church there down in Jerusalem. But John remembered those days. And John was the apostle of love. And I, I imagine there are many deeds he did that are not recorded in Scripture that we'll learn about in heaven. But he did, gave to people things and, and so forth. But he saw this church morphing into this indifference 
just like the world. He said, now look, it, you've got this world's goods, but you see a brother that has need. You see definitely somebody needs a meal. You see definitely somebody needs a pair of shoes. You see definitely somebody needs your help. You see definitely there's a single mother that needs your help. You see definitely a widow that needs your help. You're not there. How can you, how can you have bowels and compassion and shut them off? How can you have, say you have feelings for the church and you love your church, but you've got somebody in need and you close off your bowels and compassion. You have no love for this person. You're completely indifferent about what their need is. Indifference means we have no feeling. We don't care. The word shutting is the idea of closing a door. It's used in the Bible about the heavens being shut. You have this world's good. And you see a need. He says you shut up your bowels of compassion from them. And the convicting question, notice in verse 17, is how dwelleth the love of God in him? How can you say abiding in Jesus Christ, where is the love? That's what he's saying there. Yesterday, as one of our members says, hey, could you use your connections and see if you can help me find someone? We'll donate a Christmas tree to our church. Church member said, preacher, don't worry about it. I'll donate. I said, no, no, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm going to ask you to do this. No, I want to do it. I want to do it. Sent a message to a couple other church members. I said, hey, we got this tree. And they said, hey, we'll do it today. Came at 530, stayed almost 11 o'clock last night. Decorate that tree. You ought to come see it. It's a beautiful tree. It looks really great. It looks really nice. No cursing. They saw a need. So we want to be a blessing to other people. May I help us tonight? May God help us tonight? Be careful of indifference. We shut up our bowels of compassion. Well, let somebody else do it. Let somebody else be concerned. When we have this world's good and we have a bias and we can do something about it, but we're not. Not only that, but notice verses 12 to 15. He gives a command. He talks about the calluses, but notice he talks about a contradiction. Now, John's so concerned about the sincerity of sacrifice. Because he's laid the groundwork for us understanding that Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, gave, gave his all. He gave his life. He gave what was most valuable. And notice verse 12. He said, But not as Cain. Not as Cain. Cain had a brother named Abel. Both brothers had the same parents. Both brothers were taught the proper sacrifice to God as an atonement for sin. Go with me to Hebrews 12, 11, 4, so you can understand what I'm going to say in a minute. You may know it already, but I want you to turn to Hebrews 11, 4 for just a minute. Could you do that, please? Both brothers knew the standard of sacrifice was the offering of a firstling of the flock and the fat thereof. That's how it's described in Genesis 4. Now remember, John has talked about the supremacy of sacrifice. He's now moved us to the sincerity of giving, and he gives a commandment, we're to love indeed and the truth. He's shown us that 
it's very possible if we're not very careful, we can become callous and indifferent about loving, loving like Christ. And he shows us, he shows us here, he says, well, he says, I've got to tell you something because it's in the church. He says, I want to show you something that's completely contradictory and opposite of the love of Christ. Hebrews 11.4, which you notice it says here, by faith. This is the difference between Abel and Cain. Cain, you might mark this down. Cain was not a saved man. In fact, 1 John 3 says he was of the wicked one. His father was the devil. He never got saved. He's the, he's the epitome of apostasy. He had revealed truth, but he rejected it. But Abel, on the other hand, was a man of faith. He, Abel, the Bible says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, I want to tell you something tonight. That really struck me, because when you think about it, he offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He probably, as he wrote this, God put in his mind about Jesus saying in John 10, 11, I give my life for the sheep. In John 10, 18, he says, no man forces me. I lay down my life of myself. Greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And so, as, as Paul is writing this in Hebrews 11, 4, he says, Cain, Abel, offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and the Bible says here that by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, what was great about that sacrifice? It was a victim. It was voluntary. It was valuable. It was vicarious. It was, it was, it was all of those things. It was valuable. All those things I said there. He offered a sacrifice that reflected what God said you have to give. You give your all. You give your best. You give it with, the, with emotion. Your heart realizes it's acceptable before God. And the Bible compared the two sacrifices because if you go to Genesis chapter 4, Cain brought her the fruit of the ground. What's the problem with that? Well, the ground was cursed in the previous chapter. The ground was cursed. Not only that, God had already shown in the previous chapter, this is what you're going to do. He took, he killed some animals and put those animal skins on Adam and Eve and he showed them that it has to be a blood sacrifice that's going to atone for your sins. And so Abel understood that. Abel was the second born son. Abel understood that. He grabbed it. He took an animal, first thing of the flock. He gave a very innocent victim, a virtuous victim. He gave it there. It was very valuable. And the Bible says, and he gave the fat thereof, which was indicative of the fact it was very valuable. Fat was, they ate fat in those days. And that's why the Bible says, eat the fat and drink the sweet. I mean, they did. That was considered a delicacy for them and they but when you offered up the fat that was considered giving the best of the animal there and he offered up and with all the smell and things like that and the bible describes this way when abel offered his sacrifice to god it was a more excellent sacrifice than cain well god god had to speak up about that god had to tell cain and abel about their sacrifice you read in genesis chapter 4 he told cain he said abel i have respect unto your offering he says it's sweet smelling savor in my nostrils you've done exactly what i've wanted you to do you've done exactly for your sin he says you did exactly what what, what was basically foreshadowing the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and all for sinners. You've done exactly the right thing for your sin. He says, that's acceptable in my sight. And the Bible says here in Hebrews eleven four, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Notice this, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. God says, you are right. You're, you're, you've attained righteousness which is by faith. You have faith in that offering. You have faith this is going to be acceptable before God. You have faith in that. But not Cain. Cain had faith in his efforts. Cain had faith in his good works. Cain had faith in his religion. Cain had faith in his produce. He had faith. I grew these crops. And I grew these pumpkins. And I grew this squash. And I grew this bok choy. And I grew all these type of things. And I'm putting it on the altar there. And I'm giving God from the ground. But God says, no, I don't want the fruit of the ground. I want something that's going to shed his blood. You can replace bok choy. And you can replace cucumbers. And you can replace squash. But you can't replace the life that is offered on the altar. Wow. So you go back here. Look at, look at verse 12 in 1 John 3. Not as Cain. The Bible says Cain's 
countenance fell, and he was filled with wrath. You see, preacher, what does this have to do? I'm going somewhere. The supremacy is sacrifice. And this was the love of God manifested. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Cain didn't lay anything down. God had not respect unto Cain's sacrifice. Remember that? And he was filled with wrath. So it says this. Not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. Now this is the antipathy and the complete opposite of loving the brethren. He had a brother. God told him, God warned him. He said, now let me tell you, son. He says, if thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. He said, now you, you know what you need to do. You need to come by faith. But he said, if thou doest not well, listen to this. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And the opposite of sacrifice, sacrificial love, the standard sacrifice, is a Cain who got this place in his life. He got upset with Abel. He went from envy to anger to wrath to murder. Everywhere you find someone who is envy in the Bible, there's murderous premeditation in their heart. And God tells us here, his works were evil, his brother's righteous. And God says here in verse 13, now, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Okay? You should expect that the world's going to hate you. Listen, if you're living for Jesus Christ in this day and age, you should better expect the world's going to hate you. Amen. But he said, however, in the church of the living God, hatred does not belong in the church of the living God. Because you may not actually murder somebody physically, but if you get your, you get your, you get your, you get crossed some ways and, 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 you know, you get crossed some ways in your spirit, your attitude, and you just get filled with wrath because maybe this person's just got some peculiarities and it just ticks you off and, and you just see them and you just, you're filled with spitefulness towards them. And so there's just this, you've got this seething anger like, like Cain had, this seething anger, this seething wrath. And so you just kind of build it up and build it up. And if they say the wrong thing or walk by you in the wrong way, you either turn in an abrupt way and very rudely to them or disrespectfully to them, or it may be that you just kind of in the wrong moment you just kind of explode and let them have it and all this venomous things come out of your mouth and out of your heart just reflects the hatred in your heart he says he says here now look at he says i want to tell you something in the church of living god i told you to that sacrificial love and sincere love is loving indeed and in truth but he says here we see cain he says not as cain who hated his brother and the bible says here in verse 14 we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren he that loveth not his brother abideth in death whosoever hated his brother is a murderer you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him now there's two things he's saying and i got to move on number one he's saying this hatred and a murderous attitude does have not have a place in the church of the living god it's a work of the flesh galatians chapter five people get offended by the most strangest things the smallest things but on the other extreme he says this this if you have that kind of attitude you're just not changed he says According to this verse of Scripture, you may not be saved. You read over in Revelation, he talks about those who will not be in heaven. He mentions murderers there. He doesn't mean if a Christian 
wound up murdering somebody, they're not going to be in heaven, but you have to ask the question, were they, are they really saved? And I'm just saying tonight, he's just basically telling us in verses 14 15, the true evidence of a saved man is his love for the brethren. A standard sacrifice results in sincerity towards the brethren. We must be careful of callousness. We must be careful that, that we don't get into the flesh somewhere and we get upset with somebody else because they got a promotion or somebody else got recognized, somebody else got acknowledged, or somebody else did something that we felt like we should do and we got our ego in the way. Listen, we need to die to self and die to our ego and die to pride and realize tonight that only Jesus Christ alone should get the glory in the local church. One last thing, we're done. We've seen the supremacy sacrifice. We see in the standard sacrifice, we see, in the, we see here the sincerity in, 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 in sacrifice. But notice this last thing. I want you to go down to verses 19 to 24. We need to finish real quickly here. I want you to see the certainty in sacrifice. Now, John is writing to believers here who are deeply convicted by their lack of action, their wrong motives, and for some of them that their hearts got crusty and were filled with wrath and anger and hatred and God had to correct them to get them right before God. And realized they had given place to the devil by doing such a thing. And they were grieving the Holy Spirit of God as Paul elaborates on in Ephesians chapter 4. So John has addressed this matter here. Now as he closes off, he says, now listen, I've got to talk to you about some things. Because as he's talking in verse 18, as he's writing to them, he's saying we need to love indeed in the truth. And he's starting to see and recognize that some of these believers are, because they have a tender heart towards God, they're gravitating towards doing the right thing. Listen, the full essence of the preaching of the word of God is so that you and I would do the right thing before God. Amen? We want to do the right thing before God. We want to honor God. We want to correct our behavior. We want to correct our lives. And things that we're not practicing, we practice. Things that we're not doing, we do. And so he says, he recognizes there. But notice this here. He talks about in verses 19 to 22 about a people of God whose hearts are condemning them. Now, what's he talking about there? He says, I want to help you out here. He says, in verse 19, hereby we know. That we are of the truth. He just spoke about loving and deed and truth. Here, how do we know we're of the truth? And we shall assure or have confidence in our hearts. Now, what's he talking about there? In verses 19 to 22, he's talking about the certainty of having a clear conscience. Now, you want a clear conscience. Don't get to the place, Christian friend, that you have a seared conscience. We have a, God wants to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. He said, verse 20, 20, for our heart condemn us. Now, condemning heart, some of us get this way. I think I get this way sometimes. We get a little bit introspective, and we overanalyze something, and we beat ourselves up for something, for sin we've confessed, and ask God to forgive us about, but we, we have a hard time accepting that God has forgiven us. Do you feel like that way sometimes? Just you beat yourself up. I didn't do my best. I didn't do my all. And sometimes we get that way because maybe we, we, we grew up in a home where there was just a high expectation and a high expectation, low love, and we beat ourselves up. That may not be necessary because your parents were bad. It just means that's just how they were raised probably. So there was high expectations but very little love. And so we beat ourselves up and we have a hard time finding acceptance. And John is saying here, listen, I want to tell you something. Maybe your heart's condemning you. But you have to understand the, the heart is deceitfully wicked also, and your heart can play games on you. He says, for our heart condemneth. He says, for our heart condemneth. He says, God is greater than our heart. Now, you need to thank God tonight that, that no matter, sometimes as your heart leads us, you have to ask yourself, but you have to remind yourself, God's greater than my heart. Amen. God's greater than my heart. And if God's greater than my heart, I better listen to God. Amen. 
So, you know, before you make an impulsive decision, before you say, well, my heart says this to do this, God is greater than your heart. And so, but he's talking about somebody who's so, they're just, their conscience is so bothered because they feel like they have, that, that something's wrong. He says, he says, look, maybe your heart's condemning you because you haven't practiced love or maybe you've been somebody that had hatred and now you've gotten forgiveness in your heart and you're trying to put good practice in place, but you're still bothered by that. He says, God is greater than our heart and he knoweth all things. And he says, beloved, and then he goes to the other extreme, if our heart does not condemn us, but he condemns us not, then we have confidence towards God. Now, all he's trying to say here is, number one, God gives us a certainty as we live for him. So, you know, sometimes we don't do everything as the way we think we should, as we understand or correctly interpret the word of God. And so we, we tend to forget the mercies of God. We tend to forget the forgiveness of God. And I'm not saying his mercies and forgiveness are cheap and we should cheapen it. I'm just saying today that sometimes we forget about the goodness of God working on behalf there. And so because of that, we beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up. And because we beat ourselves up, God is not able to work through your life and mine. But he said, we get that place where through the assurance of God's word, the peace of God that brings understanding and, and, and rules our heart and mind. He said, we can get to this place where we realize in verse 21 that if our heart condemns us not, then have we confidence toward God. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you have a good conscience before God. You've got the peace of God in your heart that you know you did right. You know you did right for God. And you're maturing and growing the Christian faith because here's what he's trying to help us understand. By, re- by practicing this love and sincerity and deed and truth, we are, we are making our way upwards towards Christian maturity where the final goal there is that we love like God loves and we are lovable as God his love loves others and we just realize that God is working us and we come to this place we have a clear conscience before God now God wants us to have a clear conscience before him but there's even a greater thought than that look at verse 23 I'm almost done excuse me verse 22 first of all there's a certainty of a clear conscience now I want you to write this down because here's the thought I want to pull it all together with tonight there's a certainty of a powerful prayer life Now, John has said very little about prayer up until this point. He talked about confessing our sins in 1 John 1, 9. And later on, he, he pulls together 1 John verses 14 and 15 about answer prayer. Now, I believe everybody I'm preaching to tonight believe that God answers prayer. Amen? And I believe everybody I'm preaching to tonight, you want God to answer your prayers. Amen? I believe that tonight. Somebody help me with that tonight. Now, watch this. We're talking about the standard of sacrifice. These believers were to place in their life. We help settle them down and correct them about Gnosticism in the church, the problem with Gnosticism. He's correcting them about the doctrine of salvation. He's correcting them about the practice of love. He's helping them in all these different things, about worldliness and things of that nature. Now he's getting to the heart of real Christian living, which is when we spend time on our face before God. And he says in verse 22, and tying this all into because it fits within the context, he says in verse 21, Beloved of our heart, condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. And that confidence towards God means that we have this, we know that God, we're acceptable before God, and we know we're right with God, and we know we're pleasing to God. And then he says, and... Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, number one, the commandments he's speaking about here and pleasing in his sight goes all within the context of 1 John 3 about loving the brothers, about our relationships. Listen, God does care about our relationships with other people. Now, he brings prayer into the matter. Because there was a block of people in this church, their prayers were not being answered. 
They had unsaved relatives that were not getting saved. They had problems in their lives and prayers were not getting answered. And now he brings up to them this, what you would call an almost a blank check. He says, he says, look it, whatsoever we ask. Asking in faith. Asking for the impossible. Asking God to do what we cannot do. But he ties us in to the supremacy of sacrifice. Go with me to Romans 8.32, would you please? Look how this all pulls together. We're almost done. Romans 8.32, one of my favorite verses of Scripture. In fact, I, I think I sign most of my Bibles with this verse. He that spared not his own son. What's that talking about there? Sacrifice. Supremacy sacrifice. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, stop there. The supremacy of sacrifice. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. God the Father willingly and lovingly gave His Son, for God so loved the world, but God commended His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. And He's saying, now God willingly, voluntarily, uncoerced, gave up His own Son for us all. As He said in verse 32, He spared Him not. He, too, he, he, did not have any, he didn't have any strings on Him. And delivered him up for us all. He says now, he brings it to the context of God is a giver. And how does God give to us? Through prayer. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Now you tie that in, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of sacrifice. You tie that back in to 1 John chapter, chapter 3 and watch what he's saying here. Whatsoever we ask, well, the undergirding of whatsoever we ask we receive of him is undergirded by the fact that God freely gave his son for us. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him for us all, how should not freely give us all things? He's basically saying, listen, I want you to understand. Now, if you understand the supremacy of sacrifice, God gave his all, God gave his best for you and I, so that you and I could come to God in prayer. And he says, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Notice it's because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, what things are pleasing in his sight? What commandments are he talking about? Look at verse 24. 23, and this is a commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and in Him. What commandment is He talking about? Loving our brethren. Now here, listen to what He has to say about this. Mark eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you trespass. Let me tell you something tonight. Listen to me tonight. Don't, don't turn it off. If you have a spirit of unforgiveness, God can't answer your prayers. You have a spirit of resentment towards somebody, God cannot answer your prayers. That's Bible. Somebody help me with that tonight. That's Bible. When you stand praying, forgive. You're, if you're, you're holding on to bitterness, God can't answer your prayers. Look what he tells husbands and wives, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together, the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Marriage is all messed up. God can't hear your prayers. And I'll tell you tonight, you leave your children at high risk when you do that. 
We see the certainty. You pull all together the supremacy of sacrifice, the standard of sacrifice. How we live, how we love, how we pray, how we have a clear conscience. As we close tonight, I want you to notice the salvation in sacrifice. The Bible says in verse 24, 23, and this is a commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, this message was for Christians, but if you're not saved tonight, God wants you to be saved. Salvation is available by believing on the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. To as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 You can be saved tonight. You must believe on the name of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Christ gave Himself as a victim. He gave that which was most valuable. He gave Himself voluntarily. He gave Himself virtuously. He did that to undergird us so we might understand we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But we ought to realize our prayer life will, be, will not be hampered and hindered when we come with that attitude, understand that attitude of sacrifice. Are you praying the way God wants you to pray? Are you accessing the treasures of heaven? Are you loving like Jesus Christ wants you to love? Are you living and practicing in love and word and in deed and in, ta- in truth? And do you understand all those things? I mean, tonight, not as Cain, if a spirit of indifference gripped you and you realize tonight that, man, I've got to get past the spirit of indifference and realize maybe I've shut my bowels of mercies up. Maybe this Christmas season God would move in our hearts to do a little bit more and help a little bit more along the way. But let's do our part there. Realize uncoerced, uncompelled, but voluntarily for the glory of God.